Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buda. In this episode, we'll be covering a story called The Demoiselle Dees by Robert W. Chambers. This is part of our continuing coverage of his short story collection, The King in Yellow, uh, published in 1895. And this story was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters. And as always, we want to say thank you so much for participating in the show at that level. Really amazing. And of course, yeah, as you said, Brandon, this is in the King and Yellow collection. We are, I guess we're closing in on finishing that collection. This is perhaps actually about the halfway point, I suppose. And so I'm really excited that we're getting to continue doing that. It makes me nervous that we may never actually finish doing it as this is one of the highlights. This was one of sort of the, uh, I guess when we were envisioning the show before we started recording for me, uh, Chambers and the King in Yellow in particular, were going to be a real cornerstone of this. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited we're getting to do this. I really am too. I what I really want to do is just sit down and read these stories again, one by one. Uh, so many of them are connected. This one, uh, I don't know. We'll talk about this one. It's, <laughs> I think we both liked it, but as we said, as we said off off air, it's it's kind of a tough sell. <laughs> yeah, well, it is, and this is one of the stories that I think people who are you know coming to this collection by way of the Cthulhu mythos, or I don't know, True Detective, I suppose, uh, you get to this story in the collection if you're reading it straight through, uh, one story after another over the course of a week or a month or something like that. You get to this story and say, "Wait, what? What am I? What am I reading now?" And we'll talk about that as we go. But before I uh, I unleash you to do the recap, Brandon, I, I do want to say, of course, when we do finish this collection, we will do several wrap up episodes on it, or you know, something one episode, I guess, that we would be calling a wrap up episode. But then some adjacent things that we'll want to do uh, first, like uh, look at some Ambrose Bierce and maybe a few other adjacent things as well. So there will be opportunity for us to just read these stories straight through to you know refresh ourselves on them before we do that, and and. I guess really when I say I'm getting excited about closing in on finishing the collection, I think that's that's a big part of what I'm excited about getting to. It's going to be so awesome. And I'm so grateful to our listeners who keep on nominating these episodes and commissioning them because it gives us an opportunity to really meet one of our you know personal goals, quite frankly, in even conceiving of this podcast as a show. All right. Well, that was uh, a lot of preamble and... Uh... There's some cool story stuff to talk about. So so let's do it, Brandon. Get us into this one. Yeah, well, before we even get to the story, there are two epigraphs that start the story. The first is a bit of verse in French, which I will not try to read nor translate. I tried to have uh, Google do it. It couldn't translate some of the words, which was very disappointing to me. And I didn't feel like opening my French books. So, Glenn, I hope you have a lot to say about that one. <laughs> the, se- the second one uses a, a strange kind of, is in English, and it uses a strange kind of construction that you see in a lot of, uh, I don't know, like Psalms, like Hebrew poetry and things like that. I- I'll read it just to get us going here. It's this. There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, and the way of a ship in the midst of a sea, and the way of a man with a maid. So we'll see if any of this stuff shows up in this story. I'm sure it won't. I mean, right. <laughs> why, why even write them? 
<laughs> yeah, this uh, this French epigram, which I, I will translate, this is not the only untranslated bit of French that's going to show up in this story. And we should probably just call attention to, because it's going to come up again, but we should probably just call attention to the fact that Robert W. Chambers lived in Paris. He went to art school there before moving back to his native New York, where uh, he wrote the King in Yellow stories. And uh, yeah, so he, he loves France. He loves Paris. And there's a lot of that bleeding into the story. Uh, but this epigram, uh, it tr- I, I'm just going to give my own translation of this, though I could easily have looked up someone else's English translation. I did not. But this translates to something like, but I think that I have descended into that shadowy place where Heraclitus said the truth is hidden. Now, this French here, Brandon, this is not the French that you learned in in high school and college. It's not the French that you would you know speak today because this is actually a line from the 16th century writer Rabelais, uh, someone who is chronologically sandwiched between Mallory and Spencer in in the history of English language literature. And you know we don't talk like Thomas Mallory or Edmund Spencer either, <laughs> right? So same deal with the French language, the development of the French language and. Uh, Rabelais was a really important, really influential figure on the cusp of the the late Middle Ages and early modernity. He was a a humanist. He was also a sympathizer with the Reformation or... That, that's probably overstating it, but he was at least in favor of the, the need for clerical reform, maybe is the way to put that. But he is best known today as the, the writer of a series of books that are usually collected under the title Gargantua and Pantagruel. Uh, these are prose epics about two giants. Uh, they're named Gargantua and Pantagruel. They're really a type of satire. And so their adventures are... Uh, bizarre, for sure. They're often grotesque. They're also often lewd, body, kind of pornographic uh, from time to time. I mean, they're really often kind of unsettling. Um, and a lot of it, you know, for jokes, right? Just full of body jokes, I guess. But right, the point is, it's hugely important in French literature. I probably actually just should have looked at... <laughs> You know what? What like the Penguin Classics <laughs> translation said for those lines? It just you know didn't occur to me to do that. For Your some translation reason. was great, Glenn. So I don't think we have anything to worry about. <laughs> well, we'll see. Someone might come at me about it, and uh, which which actually I would enjoy. I love, of course, learning where I've gone wrong with translations. That uh, there's something else in this line, though, right? Which is that it itself includes an allusion to another historical person, and that's Heraclitus. Uh, Heraclitus was an ancient Greek philosopher. He's one of the pre-Socratics, which is you know just a fancy way of saying that he lived and worked and wrote before Socrates. And like most of the pre-Socratics, his philosophical writing only survives as what we call fragments, which does not mean that we just have like you know, bits and pieces of paper, like, like, you know, copies of his books have survived only as like material fragments. It means that we don't have any copies of his work. What we have is quotations from other philosophers who usually are wanting to prove that he's wrong. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's where we get uh, any bit of Heraclitus. Uh, we get a lot of it from, from Aristotle, in fact. But Heraclitus is very important for a number of ideas that he had about the nature of the, the universe. Uh, you know, cosmology is what we would you know, call that. He believed that the universe is made of fire as its core element. This is often a big part of what people are doing when they invoke 
Heraclitus, though I, I don't think that that's what's going on here, because Heraclitus was also really important in ontology, uh, which is just to say the branch of philosophy that studies the nature of reality, the nature of existence. And Heraclitus promoted the idea that in English is usually called becoming, which is opposed to uh, being. And this is about the nature of change, right? Whether change is possible, uh, whether a thing is still a thing if it has changed or still the same thing if it has changed and all sorts of you know, really interesting, really important, but also kind of mind-breaking questions about the nature of reality. And the tension here between you know whether or not we're living in a universe that is characterized by becoming or characterized by being is super important in the philosophy of time. Uh, and so you know it, this is also bled into cosmology in the 20th century, of course, as well. Now, I don't know if Chambers has anything like that in mind here in choosing this epigram. I think probably what's going on is just that Chambers wants us to prepare ourselves to be reading a story about someone falling into a place where some kind of truth is revealed. But I'm going to bring this Heraclitus stuff back at the discussion. Well, yeah, this story to me feels way more about shadowy places and unrevealed truths than about Heraclitus. But I cannot wait to talk about some of this, I don't know, early philosophical thought. I'm, I'm real excited to get into that. Right. And well, you're the one with the philosophy degree here on the podcast. So I'm going yes. uh, to let you do the heavy lifting as we, we get into that at the, <laughs> the end. But hey, before we even get well to that, but also even before we get to the actual story, there's this second epigram. This one's biblical. It's Proverbs 30. It's verses 18 and 19. Specifically, this is the King James translation. It is, I think, pretty clear what it's saying here, right? There are some really crazy things in the world that I can't understand. How do birds fly? How do snakes crawl up on rocks if they don't have any legs? Why don't boats sink in water? And then finally, what is it like to have sex? So, right, it's basically the exact plot of every 90s teen movie, but what's happening here. But uh, I do think that the last bit, that last line here, or the, or the last part of it, right, the, the stuff about having sex, that's what's going to matter for the story here. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll also return to this, uh, this list at the end. Yeah, I think it's going to factor in certainly into the structure of the story. Before we get into the story proper, I just want to start by saying that this story is more of a straight romance story than anything else that we've read in The King in Yellow so far. There is a weird element to this story, but it's going to take us a little bit to get to it. So here's how the story basically opens. Right off the bat, uh, we find ourselves in some moors in France, some deep swampland. Uh, and there's an American hunter who has found his way into these moors. He's come from Kersalak in order to do some hunting, but he's really not had all that much luck. So he takes a rest near a rock and he smokes his pipe. And while he's doing this, he remembers what old Gulavan told him, uh, that where he's going, that's a bad place for a stranger and he shouldn't go there alone should really consider taking a guide with him. And now this American hunter is really wishing he had because there's no houses or even trees or even edible vegetation or anything like that in sight. And so Philip, our protagonist here, really wishes he'd listened to Gulavan. We get two place names here in this opening. We get Kersalak, which you just mentioned, Brandon. That's a village. And then also the island of Gua. And these names... Uh, these let us know that 
we are in Brittany, which is the northwestern peninsula of France that has a, a distinct linguistic and cultural tradition from uh, certainly north central France or, you know, really, I guess what we would kind of think of as just being the rest of France altogether in that the indigenous language of this region in the Middle Ages was not a Romance language, it was a Celtic language. And this and this region, because of this distinctiveness here, held a real fascination for weird fiction writers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And just, you know, to cite an example of that, we have been in Brittany before when we covered the Gertrude Atherton story, The Dead and the, the Countess. Now, the village in that story was actually quite a ways away from where our narrator is here, but there are going to be some similar characteristics and Atherton and Chambers, they're contemporary with each other. So that makes some sense. And I have to say too, that I just love this opening. I mean, this story begins with the <laughs> the phrase utter desolation, which <laughs> is exactly how it feels to be out on a moor like this. I've never done this in Brittany, but I've done plenty of it in England. And it is really, truly so easy to get lost when there are just no landmarks. And even though you know that the ocean literally cannot be more than a day's walk away in just like any direction, it still feels like you're just going to be stuck here forever. And, you know, I never had like... Uh, you know, some, someone like old Gulavan, you know, like an old friend tell me, don't go out there alone. But I have had plenty of uh, people at pubs tell me, yeah, you're clearly an American and therefore you just have no business going out there on your own. I've done it every time. Look, I did make it back, but there were some times I was in exactly this situation that uh, Philip finds himself in here. And it's a great place to start a story. Uh, Chambers also has some really evocative descriptions here. This is actually the first time that we've gotten any wilderness from Chambers, right? All the other stories in this collection have taken place either in Paris or New York. That's right. Yeah, this is this is kind of a wilderness story. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm really relieved to hear that you made it back from all those trips to the moors, <laughs> because for a second, I was getting concerned that I was doing a podcast with the voice from beyond the grave so i can really sleep sleep easily uh, now, i mean we have that. not actually seen each other since uh since the pandemic started right so who knows where either of us is actually talking from at this point <laughs> that's true enough i also want to point out here something that i failed to mention and this is not going to come through in my recapping of this story that this is a first person account as well i'm kind of taking the, the third person approach in the recap well you always kind of have to do that. But uh, yeah, this is really, we're deeply in uh, Philip's uh, point of view and he's telling this story as he's, as it's happening to him. Uh, at least it seems that way for most of the story. But anyway, Philip hikes around after this uh, moment where he takes rest to smoke his pipe and remember the wisdom of old Gulavan. And then he gets tired again. So he sits down and is overcome with drowsiness. But before he can doze off, he sees a great bird quivering in the air above his face. And then he sees some darting and he follows that motion like bodily. He gets up and walks to where, where he saw the darting happen. And he comes across a falcon that has felled a rabbit. It's talon in the neck of the prey. So that's pretty startling, especially as this falcon has like little bells on it. And that indicates that this is a hunting bird that someone has trained. So there's definitely people around here. And sure enough, a woman comes up to the falcon and picks it up along with the rabbit. 
And Philip is kind of rightfully acting, maybe like he's dreamt all of this up because he wants a warm bed and a bowl of soup. But, uh, you know, it's also because the woman isn't so keen on even acknowledging Philip's existence either. But right. Philip has a goal here. He wants a place to stay. And maybe this woman lives in a house nearby and he could shelter there and have a meal. So he speaks to her. And the woman is astonished that Philip is from Kersalek and tells him that she's never seen an American before. Kersalek, she tells him, is a far way off, not just in terms of distance, but also in terms of time. Like, it could take centuries to get back to where he came from. And Philip really does not know what to make of this line that she's just spoken, and he thinks maybe he's misunderstood her. So... You know, he does what everybody in a weird fiction tale does. He ignores her. (laughs) And so then the woman goes on to say that others will be along soon. So she sits with him while she waits for whomever else is coming. And she further says that the moor is beautiful. I mean, when you don't have anything to talk about, talk about the landscape and the weather. That's that's how to be civil. And Philip replies that the moor is both beautiful and cruel to strangers. And the woman responds, beautiful and cruel. And then Philip, trying to be clever, but sounding stupid, says, yeah, that's just like a woman. And this pronouncement really upsets the woman. And she says that she's going to prove him wrong, that women don't have to be both beautiful and cruel. And this will be the revenge that she takes on his statement. And look, here come the two other men that she was waiting for. It's Haster and Raoul, who are also both carrying falcons. Yeah. So what Chambers is doing here is saying, everyone's seen a rom-com, but what if I wrote one about falconry? And uh, (laughs) like, we knew this was coming, right? The epigram told us to be on the lookout for some sexy business. And here it is. There's a bungling narrator, an alluring falconress, and they're having a meet cute on some utterly desolate moors. It is 100% my jam, though, as we said at the top of the show, we do know that this is one that a lot of other readers bounce off of. Yeah, even though it's a short enough story that you really shouldn't. It's, it's quite fun. But all right, I cannot let you say Haster, Brandon, without, uh, without stopping and pausing. I won't say much about that here because we'll, we'll make this a discussion point. But uh, yeah, one of the Falconers is named Haster, right? And that is super weird because that does not really seem to work with what we know about Haster from the other stories in this book. And that will be the question that we tackle in the discussion. Yeah, I'm really excited for that because, yes, we have seen this name show up before in somewhat more ominous modes, I think. (laughs) All right. So what's actually happening here is that Philip has fallen in with some falconers and he's also really into this woman suddenly. And he basically tells her that You know, when she's like, hey, come back to my house, he's like, oh, man, I totally forgot how tired and hungry I am because of you. And she finds this very charming. She calls him old fashioned and gallant, and he's making a really good impression on her. So, right. She invites him to stay at her place. This is another bit of her revenge to prove him wrong about women being both beautiful and cruel. And then everyone walks back to the house where the falconers live. It's really kind of a bit of an estate. And the falconers and the steward of the house and Philip also engage in a bit of a ritual around presenting a cup to the woman who sips from it. And then she offers a drink to Philip. 
And he says this in response to this cup, uh, receiving this cup and then uh, also offering it, I suppose, as well. A stranger whom you have saved from dangers he may never realize empties this cup to the gentlest and loveliest hostess of France. It's a very nice toast. And the woman responds in his name. And then she finishes her drink. And then she says to Philip, basically, welcome to the Chateau d'Is, except in a very feminine and noble voice. Okay, so this name, Chateau d'Is, is probably meaningless to most English speakers who are going to be reading this for the first time here in the 2020s. But this is a spit take moment, I think, if you're French, and certainly if you're Breton. Is is a, a city that features in a, a kind of folk tale, a, a popular story dating from the Middle Ages. It first appears in the 15th century, in writing anyway, but this text is clearly not inventing the place, uh, though to be clear, East is imaginary. <laughs> it's a legendary place. It's not a real uh, city in, in France or Brittany. But in the, the, the fictional setting of the stories about East, East is an imaginary city out in the ocean off the coast of Brittany that's built on land that was reclaimed from the ocean. How that worked, like what the real like logistics and the material nature of the existence of the city, what those things were like, that varies from version to version. But in the end, no matter what version we're in, in the end, East is a city that is completely surrounded by water and it is ringed by a seawall. And there's one gate that allows ships to come in, but only at low tide, right? So if you open this gate at high tide, the city will be flooded and destroyed. And of course, right, if your city has a weakness like that and you're in a kind of, uh, you know, folktale, that's exactly what's going to happen at some point. And it is. And the city is lost beneath the ocean. So it's a a sunken city story in the vein of Atlantis. And there are, as I said, a lot of versions of this story. They vary about what it is that led to the opening of the gate at high tide. Uh, there's often an evil lady involved who is sometimes the king's daughter, though also sometimes she's not evil. She's just in love and foolish. There are also some hagiographies or, or saints' lives that incorporate this story. And of course, because they're telling the story of the saint, what they do is make the saint heroically you know, save the king or something like that, right? So that there is one survivor. Uh, also, there are versions of this story that claim that the city of East will return someday. You know, maybe it's at the end of the world. Maybe it's in a time of great need. And so there's a bit of Avalon to this place as well. And so, yeah, hearing this woman say, welcome to the House of East is really similar to running into somebody in an English moor and then having her say, you know, like, welcome to Camelot or or welcome to Avalon, more or less. And so uh, in the discussion, we'll speculate a little bit more about what Chambers is up to with East here, but we're going to need to know more. We're going to need to see a little bit more in this story before we can really do that. I did not know this, and I'm very excited by this bit of information and the, the I don't know, cultural threads that uh, Chambers is tugging on here to give life to a story that is, is kind of rather short and mostly about falcons to give it this kind of extra literary quality or connecting to a tradition of literature that, you know, I'm unfamiliar with. And uh, boy, this is one of those great surprises that crops up once in a while when we do these episodes. 
I've been living with the story of East my entire life or, well, I mean, I guess maybe not my entire life, but since I've known how to read, I grew up surrounded by encyclopedias of mythology and that sort of thing that were, you know, these were always gifts from aunts and uncles, which is, well, that's what aunts and uncles are for. So thank you for that. And uh, I'm really excited to have a chance to talk about this here. And I, I actually just discovered as well that uh, in looking around uh, the internet, I was actually trying to find those books that I used to have when I was a kid. I had three that I distinctly remember retelling this story in, in, in different ways. In fact, I went looking for those on the internet and really could not find them, but I have discovered that actually just within the last calendar year, there's a, a middle grade retelling of this story uh, in, in English that's more or less you know brand new. It's a less than a year old that uh, is now, now sitting on Finch's bookshelf for him to have something <laughs> akin to the experience that I had when I was a kid. It'll be a few years before he's there, but I'm excited about that. Before we move on, uh, there's one last thing that we should say about where we are in the story here, which is to say that the woman here sings a little song while they're at the chateau. It's in French. Chambers does not translate it, but it is a hunting song. It's written by the, the songwriter and poet uh, Pierre-Jean de Beringer. He was kind of a rock star in the early 19th century. Uh, this song is actually just called the Hunt you know, does exactly what it says on the box there. It's a hunting song called The Hunt. <laughs> and it's a song that he wrote when he was in prison in the 1820s. Uh, Beringer was in prison for publishing political songs. That business is all wrapped up in uh, you know, the French Revolution and Napoleonic stuff. doesn't really matter. Uh, Beringer was only in jail for a few months. And uh, later in life, he wrote that he actually found it rather comfortable, like he liked the bed. So, you know, <laughs> there's that for whatever that's worth. <laughs> but anyway, the point is here, this song gives us a date, right? This song's written in the 1820s. That's a date. We're going to need dates later. Yeah, that's really important to know, as, as we'll find out. And uh, another thing you might not know if you're listening to this episode and haven't read this story is that uh, this story's broken up into chapters, and we just finished chapter one. <laughs> right. <laughs> now we're going to move into chapter two. Before we do that, I just want to comment on this uh, experience of be having these books as a kid that were like about lost places or whatever. That seems to have like totally disappeared because I remember growing up and, and you know, being just enthralled by legends of the Loch Ness Monster or these lost places like lost to time that you might still find if you were, say, to travel to the Congo or something like that as a nine year old boy. And it's just a real shame to me that I don't see a lot of books like that out there anymore. And uh, well, I don't know. This isn't a lamentation, but I just wanted to make that point. <laughs> Well, we, we do some fair bit of lamenting, I think, on the air from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into chapter two. Uh, Philip has gone to this house, as we know, and he's gone to bed alone. And he wakes up the next morning in an ancient bed to the sound of a horn. And he looks out his window onto the court. And it looks like a hunting party is forming with hounds and horses and falcons. And this woman is in the yard and giving some kind of chiding, berating instructions to the falconers about the birds, or even really to the birds themselves. She might be chiding a falcon for its poor uh, showing uh, yesterday. And, you know, Philip wonders, again, rightly so, if he's still dreaming. And it's because he, he's hearing all these terms that are really old falconer terms that he's only come across in yellow manuscripts. And these are not terms that are used in falconry anymore. 
I highlight this bit about yellow manuscripts because, uh, you know, this is really the color yellow in this story. The only time we get it. But <laughs> the woman uh, then takes a step back. She's, you know, Philip is watching this scene. She's taking, takes a step back from the situation and decides that she needs to give the bird another chance. And Raul then says it would be his pleasure to keep the hawk. It just needs more lessons in practice and it'll be a good bird soon. So the hunters now leave on their hunt and the woman is free to visit with Philip. After having witnessed the scene, Philip takes a bath in very cold water in an earthen basin or tub, but now he's got another problem. He can't find his clothes, but some servants have set out some other clothes for him to wear. And these clothes are in a strange fashion. They're not like what he had been wearing before but he puts them on because you can't go to breakfast naked. And here's how the clothing is described in the story. Everything was there. Cap, shoes, and hunting doublet of a silvery gray homespun. But the close-fitting costume and, steamless and seamless shoes belonged to another century. And I remembered the strange costumes of the three falconers in the courtyard. I was sure that it was not the modern dress of any portion of France or Brittany. And so when Philip puts on the clothes and looks at himself in the mirror, he realizes he looks like a young huntsman from the Middle Ages. So I'm sure we don't have anything to worry about here. This is just a weird place where people are LARPing. And because there's no bell in his room to call his servant to get some new clothes, he just kind of has to move on with his day. You know, he does want clothes that would look good out in Kersalak but he's got to follow the rules of the house when in Rome, so to speak. Anyway, Philip goes downstairs for breakfast and he finds that the woman is waiting for him. She asks how he slept and stuff. And if he finds the clothes to his liking and he says, yeah, now I actually really like these clothes a lot more than my old clothes. And he tells her as much. So she says that they'll just throw his old clothes away if he doesn't like them at all. <laughs> he says, oh, she doesn't have to do that because he needs them when he returns to France uh, because that's the clothes that people wear there. And the woman just laughs at him and says that it's time to eat. She's been waiting for him to break her fast so that she can eat breakfast with him. But Philip is kind of caught up in another situation here that's resulting in him having a hard time eating. And the woman notices this and, and she asks him what's wrong. Is he ill at ease with something? And he responds that he's ill at ease for love for her. He loves her. He loves her. And then the woman says, I love you too. And Philip is heartened by this. So he tells her that he will now win her. And it's at this point that they exchange names for the first time. And so this is where we learn that Philip is named Philip. And the woman is named Demoiselle Jeanne Dees. I always try to tell people I love them before learning their names for the record. It's a solid strategy. <laughs> Philip's really hitting it out of the park here. I mean, do names really matter when true love is yeah, by any other name? <laughs> anyway, uh, the two continue to chat. And this is where Philip really learns about the Demoiselle Dees. Her parents died uh, maybe long ago. She's lived here for 19 years with her nurse, Pelagie, as well as with the Picure and the Four Falconers, who had been in her father's service. She's also never left the moorland, and she's actually not even seen any other people except for her falconers and servants. 
she says that she must have heard of Kursilek at some point in the past, maybe when she was a child. And she knows all about werewolves and Jeanne La Flamme, the 14th century Duchess of Brittany. She learned about those people from her nurse. Yeah, so she's really up to speed on current events. And <laughs> she's seen ships too. And she knows that the Moors are enchanted. And she is very serious about all of this from the enchanted Moors to the werewolves to the existence of Jeanne Laflamme. Right. The enchantment is that anyone who wanders into the Moors will be trapped. And yeah, as you said, Brandon, this is something that she knows about because of her nurse. So, you know, it's probably just some lower class superstitious nonsense that we don't need to worry about or take seriously at all. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we do learn this woman's name here. It's, you know, Jeanne. It's you know, Jenny, right? Which... I just want to say is not, to my knowledge, the name of any character in stories about the city of East. She does also give us the names of some stories that she knows, again, from her nurse, uh, Lou Garou, which just means werewolf, as as you've translated it, Brandon, and then uh, Jean Laflamme. I'm not sure about this werewolf business, uh, I have to say. It's given here as if this is the name of either a specific person or a specific story rather than just the the name of like a, a type of thing, right? Something generic. But I do not know a story like that. I don't know a story that is called Lugaru or a character that is, is called that. Uh, maybe somebody else does. Like this might be a story cycle from 19th century France or something like that. I don't know, but I would love to know if if you do. I would definitely like to know more about this. But I can talk about Jean Laflamme a little bit. She's a historical figure. She's really Joanna of Flanders, and she was the Duchess of Brittany in the 1340s, as you said, Brandon. And she was involved in what is called the War of the Breton Succession, which is itself a small part of what we today call the Hundred Years' War of the 14th and 15th centuries. Joanna's son uh, ends up winning the War of the Breton Succession in 1364. And this war was exactly what it says in the box. It was a war about property rights, right? Who actually is the you know rightful ruler of Brittany? And of course, in the Middle Ages, ruler means owner, right? This is the type of society we're in here. But in later stories, early modern stories, uh, Joanna of Flanders becomes Jean the Flamme, and she's transformed into something of a Breton folk hero. She's someone who's seen as, interpreted as fighting to keep Brittany for Bretons against the incursions of the French and the Anglo-French. All of that is nonsense, of course. Uh, Jean Le Flamme, Joanna of Flanders didn't speak Breton, didn't identify as a Breton. You know, it's all absolute nonsense, but it is the thing that Chambers is invoking here. And again, right, this gives us another date. So we are compiling some dates in this story. And as I said, those are going to matter later. They sure will. I want to say the the core reason why I know uh, Lou Garou is French for werewolf is because of a weird film called The Brotherhood of the Wolf that is very difficult <laughs> to track down now, but somehow was an important part of my high school life. So there's that. Uh, yeah, I do, I also don't know the the history of this uh, story cycle or myths or folklore in, in France, but um, yeah. Maybe maybe one of these characters is a werewolf. That's not in this text at all, but we can imagine. <laughs> Perhaps one is. All right. Well, uh, Philip 
even though he knows he's in love, he also knows he's got to go back to Kersalek at some point. So he finds himself agreeing to stay for a week to hunt with the Demoiselle Dees. And then he's going to come back and visit anytime he wants. He's got an open invitation. But Jean just wants him to stay and to never leave. And he tells her he'll visit every day. And he agrees to that. And then she takes him to see her hawks. And the hawks are pretty awesome here. And she explains uh, some of the terms that she's used before that relate to falconry. And she talks about how to train them. Uh, but Philip only has love on his mind here. And he says that she's already caught the only falcon that she needs, which is not true if you rely on falcons as a hunting tool for food. But <laughs> Philip is already tamed and he's jest and he's belled. And Jan is delighted by this. But actually, she does want to talk about falconry here because it's a pretty big deal for her. So <laughs> they talk a little more about love and then they talk about falconry and a little more about how to train the falcons. But something is upsetting the birds at this point. They're flapping their wings and squawking. And here's what it is. There's a serpent moving across a rock towards them. And Philip asks if this snake is harmless. And the woman says that it is a viper, certain death. But then Philip, for some reason, moves forward to examine the serpent. He wants to kill it, I guess, as a way of winning the demoiselle. But before he does that, they kind of really get into some kissing for a little bit. And the serpent is still there and it's moving towards them some more. And then the serpent strikes at Philip again and again. And Philip stomps the serpent to death before losing consciousness. Philip wakes up sometime later and he looks around in terror. Jeanne is gone, but the viper is there, dead. Some landmarks are also there that he remembers, but the house, the garden, the fruit trees, the falconry blocks, everything man-made is gone. Philip moves forward to investigate and he calls out Jeanne's name. Then he falls because his leg is still damaged and he finds a shrine carved in stone, and he reads the inscription that has been written on it. Pray for the soul of Demoiselle Giandis, who died in her youth for love of Philip A. Stranger, A.D. 1573. And then the story ends with this final line. But upon the icy slab lay a woman's glove, still warm and fragrant. And that's the end of the story. We're all familiar with this type of story, right? Where the character seems to have been experiencing a, a kind of dream. And, and maybe we, the readers, weren't aware until the very end that what we were reading was supposed to be a dream or probably a dream. But then, of course, the character is confronted with material evidence that, nope, actually, it wasn't a dream. It was all real, even though the reality of it defies our rules for how the universe works. And that's what's going on here. So we'll be talking about that. But this story is also just really heartbreaking in a kind of straightforward way, right? Philip met a woman, he fell in love, and for some reason had her taken from him, had that love taken from him. Uh, what's worse, of course, right, is that that's the same story from her perspective. And she died from this, and I, you know, I think that this is a euphemism for suicide here, probably, right? 
that's something we can speculate about, I suppose. But you know, the real thing, of course, right, is, is how does this work, this time travel business? That's going to be the first topic of our discussion. But before we get into that, we would like to ask our listeners who are not already supporting the show on Patreon to consider doing that. At all levels, you get access to monthly bonus episodes, plus any extra series that we do. And right now, that includes the 14 episodes that we have done on H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which we are in the middle of wrapping up right now. And then from the second tier of support and up, you get to vote in the polls that decide what we cover. There are also some bonus episodes that are only available at that tier and up, and that does include the King and Yellow story that precedes this one. That's the yellow sign. And your support keeps the show on the air and all the other shows that we do as well, of course. And yeah, we think you get some cool stuff in return for helping us out. So if you can, please join us. It really does help. And it also really means a lot to us. It helps. And really what we have on Patreon is like a whole other series of content, multiple series of content that you have access to that uh, we put a lot of work into, just like we do on the main show. And and it's really there because of how much we value your financial support for the network. And also along with your support, we're able to do some longer works of weird fiction like we did with the Mountains of Madness, some bonus series that let us really breathe and take our time with some bigger works of the genre that we're just excited to get to. So just go to Patreon and look at the different support tiers, uh, take a look at some of the goals that we have. And if you want us to reach those goals, that's the way that you can help. So like we say, we're so grateful for all, for all the support we're getting already. But um, we have some really cool stuff in mind, the more support we get. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. Well, Brandon, let's, uh, let's jump right into talking about the timeline here, the metaphysics of time travel. We get this date at the end, 1573. That is a shock, right? We're surprised to discover that this business with the, the manor, the Chateau Dice is happening in 1573. Though, of course, Chambers has built that up for us with the business about the clothing and like you know, all the stuff about falconry and also language and so on. But, you know, it's meant to be a, a shock, maybe not to us, but it is definitely a shocking revelation to Philip to see this date, 1573. But I, we don't actually get a date about when the present is. And since for us reading this book at all, right, the, the, the comp composition, the publishing of this book is removed from us by over a century. Uh, I think we should talk about when we actually think even the narrator is living. Right. So this was published in 1895. So I, my gut was just that this was contemporary with the time that Chambers was actually writing this story. Philip is also keen on pointing out that he's an American. So definitely 19th century. Uh, I think to have that kind of identity. And Demoiselle Jeanne Dees has no idea really about Americans, but she kind of covers that up by saying, well, I've never seen an American before, right? So I think definitely it's sometime after the founding of America, the establishment of something like an American national identity and 1895 is, is kind of when I put the present day Philip in uh, this stream of time. 
Yeah, I, I agree completely. It is contemporary to Chambers' own life. Chambers may even really just be drawing on some actual experience he had with going to, to Brittany. I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, Chambers lived in France in the 1880s, right? So uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's the 1880s, but the point is Chambers' own lifetime for sure. I, I wondered about the, the 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 business with the I've never seen an American before. I don't know if Chambers was making a kind of joke, a kind of pun there. I, I mentioned earlier that in the Middle Ages, Brittany is populated by people who are speaking a, a Celtic language, but that's not true in antiquity. The, the people speaking this Celtic language uh, that we call Breton are migrants. They come there from Britain. Uh, and in fact, the reason that the phrase Great Britain exists is not because, you know, Britain is really great, although I have enjoyed living there. It, it's really a mistranslation from the Latin. And what we really mean is just big. It's big Britain. And that's to distinguish it from the little Britain, which is Brittany, uh, which, of course, also is distinct from we Britain, which is a neighborhood in California that uh, no one should ever <laughs> should ever visit. <laughs> but the point is, that's a, a medieval name for this place. The Latin name for this place is Armorica, which can sound an awful lot like America. <laughs> Yeah, right. And so I wondered if, if Chambers was making a pun there. I Probably not. Probably not. He may have been. And we should also point out, I mean, we're saying this story, you know, exactly when it's taking place for Philip may not matter all that much. And so it can be contemporary with the writing. But we've seen other stories in The King in Yellow that take place in Chambers' future. You know, it could be that Philip is from that time as well, but it's just not that germane to the to the plot. No, and I think really what matters is, hey, he's not living in 1573, right? I think that's right. that's that's what matters, and 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 it is materially like the late 19th century, right? For sure, in terms of like he's you know he's got this gun, he's got the pipe, the clothing as it's described, and so on. But we we now have to talk about what actually has happened in this story. I have just gravitated towards a, a reading of this story without a lot of reflection, which is to say that. I just inferred that this is a time travel story, but it doesn't have to be, right? And I suspect, Brandon, that you might have a different reading of this, that 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 this is actually just a story about a guy who got lost out in the moors and fell asleep and had a dream at this grave. That That's not quite my reading of the story, but it certainly is supported by evidence in the text where he keeps on like falling asleep and dreaming and then he wakes up. And there's a dead snake next to him. So we have to wonder about like how the snake died. It could have been an eagle or a, another hawk on this island who killed the snake. And that was just really good luck, though it does seem as though he was bitten by a viper. But you're right to point out that this, to me, reads more like a straight, straightforward time travel book. But it follows the logic of a dream, this falling in love with a mysterious woman in an enchanted place, not learning her name until, you know, after you say I love you, that she's kind of this, you know, dreamlike figure that he's hearing language he only read about in the past in a yellowed manuscript. There's a lot of dream logic in this story. And we have seen Chambers use dreams as a mode of telling the story that have very real impacts in the past. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that this is another type of dream world intrusion on the present, uh, which could explain not just the obscure falconry language, but also the intrusion of the name Haster as well. Yeah, which we're going to have to take up. You said 
straightforward time travel story. But one thing we should be clear about here is that uh, The King in Yellow, the book, The King in Yellow, is published the same year as The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And so Chambers is writing this story in a world that doesn't actually have such a thing as a straightforward time travel story yet. <laughs> where like right. some monumental work of staggering genius has laid out the rules that we're all going to work in uh, forever and ever until we you know, reach the pinnacle of that with Marty McFly. Uh, yeah, this follows more of the logic of, uh, you know, what we see in, in the Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour film somewhere in time where, you know, Christopher Reeve can time travel so long as he doesn't have modern pennies in his pocket right. um, <laughs> just just by doing some trick of consciousness. <laughs> so, yeah, this is more that that kind of vibe than the uh, mechanical, like industrial uh, time travel story. That Wells put forth. Right. And, and time travel stories certainly predate the time machine, but this is largely how they work. It's uh, sending out your consciousness in some way, or just you fall asleep and wake up in another time. I, I think well know Rip Van Winkle. That's a travel to the future story. But that I think is what's happening here, that this is a fall asleep and travel back in time story. But then if that's true, I have to wonder what is it that happens that that snaps the narrator back to his present. Why, why does he come back? Uh, maybe there are rules about the number of times you can fall asleep in this time period, but I definitely think it's the Viper bite. This, this serpent, right? This image of some kind of fall of representing the breaking of a kind of pure love situation, um, that intrudes on this moment and it strikes Philip and he goes down. And I think that the Viper is kind of the, well, to use a phrase, the serpent in the garden, so to speak. Yeah. I, snakes. Yeah. They're not good. They're not good when they show up in stories. Right. And uh, <laughs> so something is going on here. I don't know if, you know, there's some kind of uh, chemical reaction with the venom that, that, that means that uh, a human being or anything else, I suppose, bitten by the snake is going to snap it back to its, its present time in, in the rare chance that it happens to be time traveling. I suspect that's not how Chambers is conceiving of this, but there does definitely seem to be something about the snake and the snake bite that brings him back. Like if he'd avoided being bitten, then he wouldn't have been snapped back. But what other things might have brought him back to his his presence from 1573 or the 1570s? I, I, I don't know. I don't really understand, you know, like how this works here. Yeah, symbolically, it's a little cluttered. And then also just there's there's not a rational thing. I mean, it's really following this dream logic, like I said, even the way the snake appears in the story and the way it moves, the way Philip and Jan ignore the snake and just start like kissing a lot. All of that's very dreamlike as if they know they're going to be torn apart on some level. Uh, the snake means certain death. It certainly does for Jeanne. It, it, it might for Philip. I mean, are we reading that Philip is going to die from this viper bite at the end? He's still in pretty bad shape. Oh, I don't think so. I, I think the, the heartbreak, the tragedy works better if he makes it back to Kursalak, uh, makes it back to America, and that's it. He just never knows love again. This was his one shot at it, and uh, he's just going to live with a broken heart the rest of his life. I think that's the that's the romance writer story here. Yeah, I think so, too. I don't think he, he dies um, from the snake bite, but it certainly injures him, and it takes him out of the enchantment. 
Well, there's a curious question that I have then about something that's happening in this 1570s setting, if we are reading this as a time travel story. Everything that Chambers has Jenny know is from before the 1570s, right? So we've got the, the, the costume and the material culture and the language are all early modern or, or late medieval. And then she knows other stuff like her sense of kind of the, the you know, recent historical past is all before the 1570s. But Chambers does this weird thing where he has her sing this song in French. He doesn't translate it. That is not medieval or early modern. It's from the 1820s. And so... How how can she know that song? How can she know a song that was written in the 1820s if she's living in the 1570s? Uh, perhaps Philip is not the first person to become trapped in the Enchanted <laughs> Moors. And uh, whether or not she's fallen in love with other people, uh, you know, she might have picked up some hunting songs or something along those lines from others who have been trapped in these moors who take centuries to to find their way back home. I like this idea. I like that, that there might be a series of stories about people who show up <laughs> at the Chateau d'Ice and are always like, uh, you know, commenting on the clothing and all that, all that sort of thing. But also, yeah, maybe they show up from different periods. Yeah, that's a story cycle that uh, that could be written. And that people have done a lot of spinning off of uh, of the King in Yellow, but uh, that's not one I think that I've encountered before. So maybe that's your angle into this, Brandon. <laughs> Perhaps, yes, though I am the wrong person to write the enchanted woman in in the enchanted castle story. That's that's a fact. <laughs> well, I was bothered by this use of the song here, this Behringer song from the 1820s, but I will say that I don't think that Chambers means for that to be weird. I don't think he means for us to actually notice that. For one, it's it's not verbatim he changes up a few things uh but it is clearly that song it is clearly the the song the hunt by Beringer from the 1820s but he changes it up just a, a little bit which may actually mean that chambers himself doesn't know when this song is from that he just heard this song when he was living in paris this type of song that you might have heard people actually just singing around paris like in a bar or you know possibly just uh, some kind of uh, you know musical performance at a park or just people on the street was, these were very popular songs about three generations before uh chambers lived in paris so i don't know this would just be like hearing the beatles out in the world today, right? And so Chambers may have thought that, well, one, Chambers may have just been taking a song that he heard and putting it in this story without knowing the provenance of it or caring about the provenance of it at all. But it may also be that Chambers thought that this song was medieval in some way and, and possibly even Breton. I mean, it is a hunting song. It is describing hunting in a pre-modern setting. There aren't any guns or anything in this song. It is describing something like that. And so he may have thought that it was an older song. And so it just seems to me like Chambers here, you know, kind of whichever of those angles is is right. Chambers, what he's doing here, really writing this story now that he's back in New York is just invoking the culture that was around him when he was living in Paris in the 1880s and the early 1890s. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's also the fact that a good folk song will always kind of sound timeless, I think, to the ear. And that... Uh, especially things that are being sung in taverns and things like that. Maybe nobody even knows where they ever came from. We have attribution now, but many people might not have. And so you just think this sounds old and it's going to sound old to the reader's ear as well when they're reading it in my story. Yeah, I think that that is likely what happened, though I, I should say that that 
people contemporary to the song in the 1820s knew Behringer wrote it. Behringer, you know, I described him as kind of a, a rock star. He becomes right. <laughs> he becomes rich from writing these songs, though not at the time that he had written that song. It was a little bit later and maybe not that song specifically, but he becomes a wealthy person because of writing songs like this. So people did know who he was, at least at, at that point. So maybe maybe comparing him to the Beatles was perhaps a mistake there. It'd be like hearing, a, I don't know, a, a, a Motown song by a band that you know you should know the name of, but you're not really really sure about. I think that's probably more the sort of sense of, of hearing this uh, hearing this song uh, in the 1880s when Chambers was living in Paris. I, I want to actually follow this train of thought of just thinking about Chambers soaking up what's in the the milieu uh, of, of Paris uh, here, Belle Epoque Paris, as he's living in it, to think about Yeast at all as a, a, a thing that he's incorporating into this story, uh, a place, uh, a legendary place that you've only just heard of as we've been recording this episode, Brandon, that I, I suspect Chambers had not heard of before uh, going to live in Paris either. And in fact, I, I think that probably the reason that he knows about this, well, there are a couple reasons why he knows about this, but it's, it's really just to say that in the 19th century, Europeans, especially Western and Central Europeans, are getting extremely interested in uh, folktale traditions. This is all wrapped up in the movement of nationalism, which we actually talked about at perhaps extreme length when we did our pair of episodes on the first story in this book, The Repairer of Reputations. And France can be a little bit strange in that picture, in that this region of France, in which people in the Middle Ages did not speak French, but spoke a Celtic language, is not having as much of a revival, uh, not having as much of a, a nationalist movement, I should say, as uh, the equivalent place in the United Kingdom, uh, which is to say Wales. Uh, but still, there is some bit of that, and that's working its way into Parisian culture. And I can point to two specific things that I think would have impacted Chambers. As I said earlier, Chambers was in Paris uh, to learn how to be a painter, which is what he was doing when he moved back to New York, making a living as a painter, though it turned out that uh, he could make a better looking writing romance novels. And that's principally what we know him for today and what he moved into as his career. But he was a really, I think, very good painter. And he went to Paris to learn how to do this. And there is an elderly painter who's not living in Paris anymore in the 1880s. This is a, a guy named uh, Luminet. And he painted a scene from this story that, although he wasn't living in Paris, was prominently on display in Paris in the 1880s. And I just don't at all doubt that Chambers saw this. But then another thing that's going on in the 1880s while Chambers is there, in fact, the year after he's uh, moved to, to Paris or two years after he's moved to Paris, perhaps, is that there is an opera that retells the story of the city of East. Uh, it's called um, the, the King of East. I mean, in English, obviously, it's by the composer Edward Lalo. And you know, maybe Chambers saw a performance, maybe he read reviews in the newspaper, something like that. You know, maybe he didn't, but there's no way that he could have avoided seeing the Art Nouveau advertisements for this. And uh, so I think there's just, you know, East is in the air here. And there's a lot of that going on in this story where Chambers is just kind of trying to capture the real zeitgeist of, of thinking about France's kind of pre-modern history. Uh, as people are conceiving of it in Paris in the you know Belle Epoque period. 
it's a really fascinating approach to the story that, you know, I had to read kind of at face value and just read this strange story about falconry and romance and time travel in the middle of a cycle of kind of horror stories, primarily or weird tales and say, how does this fit in? But we've also seen so many times where Chambers is thinking about what's going on in the world around him. And so I think approaching the story from this angle, where he's just maybe trying to get 2,000 words knocked out to round out the collection, <laughs> is saying, well, all, why is the past resurging so much now in France and all over? And kind of looking to the past as a source of interest for telling uh, a weird story. I want to talk a little bit more about this composer, Lalo, here. I think at this point, listeners to the show realize that I listen to a lot of classical music, a lot of film scores as well. I have been at various points in my life a very big opera buff. I'm I'm a little lower on that right now, but this is an opera that I have been listening to since high school. Of course, what attracted me to it is that it is about this legendary place, you know, this legendary city that sinks beneath the ocean. I don't know that I can really recommend this opera on a, a musical level. I mean, I think it's it's pretty good, but like, you know, if you're going to pick an opera to listen to, there's every opera by Verdi or every opera by <laughs> Wagner that you should listen to first. But I do actually kind of like this piece. But what I really want to say here is simply that I thought about talking about Edward Lalo when we were doing our three episodes on the Vandermeer story, the transformation of Martin Lake, where we talked about seeing the city of Ambergris in that story, at least as a kind of fin de siècle Paris. And Lalo is actually someone that I just had in mind as kind of a model for Voss Bender, the composer who's, you know, death, uh, you know, is central or to that story and uh, didn't bring that up. I, I wish I had because now, you know, clearly important to Robert W. Chambers. I should note, too, that we talked very briefly in uh, the discussion episode for that Vandermeer story, The Transformation of Martin Lake, about the music of this period because, hey, that's a story that's about music and about painting. Uh, we mentioned uh, the composer Debussy. I think you specifically mentioned his piano music, Brandon, and Debussy actually has a piano prelude that is also about East. Uh, this is called The Submerged Cathedral. Uh, this is not something that Chambers uh, could have heard in Paris because it was composed 20 years after he had left Paris. But uh, it's a really beautiful piece. I, I recommend people listening to that. But that's all just kind of an aside. I mean, I would recommend that piece over the Lalo Opera any day. But um, anyway, that's just an aside. Really, what we need to talk about, Brandon, is... Is there any sunken city business going on in this story? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, it, it looks like that what has happened to this estate is that it's just crumbled from disuse over time. There's not even anything left to it in the intervening 400 years that you can even find a foundation block or something like that. I mean, the grave is there, the gravestone, the shrine, um, but nothing else really remains. And so... It doesn't seem to me as, as though this is a, really a story about uh, the sinking city. Uh, maybe this girl's death stopped the gates from ever being open. She talks about seeing ships and things like that. But yeah, it doesn't seem like it's playing a super big role in this story. Did you have a, a different sense of that? No, not at all. It's totally bonkers to me. Why, why even use this at all? It, it doesn't have any parallels with that story. It... Uh, you know, none of the character names matter here. Like they're they're not the names of characters in any version that I know of of the of that story. Um, we're not out in the ocean. I mean, you know, like we're 
we're on the coast, you know, we're on the, this moorland in the coast. I, I think that Chambers is just taking the kind of real generic idea of an imaginary Breton place that um, has some aura around it of existing kind of outside of time and maybe being a sort of magical place that people can get to. I mean, there are versions of the story that are kind of like that. And so maybe that's what he's got in mind here. Uh, it's possible Chambers knows less about this than, well, than, you know, like someone who's read some of these texts has. He may have not read any of these texts. He may not have seen the opera performed and only seen the posters, right? And so he kind of only has maybe a vague sense of it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, it really struck me as a strange choice. Like, it's totally unnecessary. You read this story and enjoyed it without knowing that this wasn't a literary illusion at all. And it's not a very good illusion, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of an idea or like a, a kind of an idea you, you might have as a writer when you're like, oh, man, Chichen Itza is a really cool phrase. And it seems like an ancient city or like whatever, however you approach that idea. And you never do any research on it. You're just trying to capture the way that you feel about that place just from hearing it passed around people in, you know, contemporary culture or whatever. You see it on the cover of a book and you're like, oh, there's something exciting about the mystery of the place. And then you write the story and you go back and you do research and you're like, I'm an idiot. You know, there's, there's actual real stuff about this thing. I made a huge mistake. Well, I don't think it's quite at that level. And in fact, I think that we, we could probably actually compare what Chambers is doing here to something that his contemporary, Arthur Mackin, is doing with Welsh material, where uh, it would, you know, Celtic in the same way that this Breton material is here. There's a lot of really interesting early medieval literary material that works its way into uh, broader traditions, right, from Wales into the Arthur stuff, the Arthur cycle, uh, which is all actually French in its origin. And Mackin is drawing on that material as well, but in a way that's not drawing on it off in any way, in a very literal way. He's drawing on a kind of sense of it rather than making real textual allusions to specific works of literature. And I, I think this has that same feel to it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was using a, a hyperbolic case there, but it's certainly <laughs> I think we've all felt that type of excitement or wonder or mystery at something and thought, that's the feeling I'm trying to capture. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Chambers was doing something along those lines. But yeah, clearly he's he's done it much better than uh, uh, certainly I would have been able to do. Well, East is not the only name that features in this story that we need to think about. As we said, Haster. Haster is here in this story, or the name Haster appears in this story, and it belongs to one of the Falconers. And this name has appeared before in The King in Yellow. It's all over the Repair of Reputations. That's really the big place where it shows up. Uh, I won't go through all of the references uh, you know i won't re you know read them all into the microphone here though this is probably something that we will do when we eventually get to doing a uh, a wrap-up episode or more likely pair of wrap-up episodes on the, the king in yellow <laughs> a few years hence or as quickly actually as our patreon supporters want us to get there i suppose but anyway they're in the repair of reputations this name haster it appears in this book that uh mr wild has this book the imperial dynasty of america castain is able to you know read some bits of this. We get something like uh, a line that's uh, from uh, when from Carcosa, the Hyades, Haster, and Aldebaran, uh, you know, 
appearing in the text. And Mr. Wilde talks about Haster a, a little bit, uh, also in the same uh, breath as Aldebaran and the, the Hyades, uh, the dynasty in Carcosa. And there are some other instances of the word uh, Haster in this story. But the, the other one that I think really matters the most is uh, this. And here I will just read this uh, verbatim into the microphone. The time had come. The people should know the son of Haster, and the whole world bow to the black stars which hang in the sky over Carcosa. And for the most part, these lines really indicate that Haster is a place. I mean, son of Haster could mean son of a person named Haster, but this really, all the other lines refer to it as a type of place here. At least that's my sense of it. That's my sense of it as well. It could be a star or a place named for a star or something like that. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe Haster's a werewolf and Son of Haster's about <laughs> right. uh, urban fantasy race or something <laughs> like that. And actually, what we're reading is a series of stories about werewolves, a stealth urban fantasy <laughs> story cycle, something along those lines. But uh, yeah, it's a curious name to throw in here other than to add to the dreamlike quality of this story that maybe this name is the connection to the King in Yellow mythos, apart from the phrase yellowed manuscripts yeah I, I don't know that yellowed manuscript really that's what old manuscripts are i mean there's like a real limited color range for old manuscripts <laughs> right, right so right. uh that's going to be one of them but it's this also appears the name haster also appears in the story of the yellow sign and, and the line we get there is uh the narrator talking about uh, uh tessie he says we spoke of haster and of casilda while outside the fall rolled against the blank window panes as the cloud waves roll and break on the shores of Hali, which I think is actually a line that we read straight into the microphone when we did that story as well, because it's a really beautiful line. And here it might be a place, it's just saying we talked about Haster, but it's paired up with Casilda, who is definitely a person. So, you know, maybe it's a person here, but in either case, these elements are taken from the king in yellow. They're talking about the fact that they just read the play, the king in yellow here. And so, yeah, I just don't really know what to make of the appearance of the name Haster as like a 16th century Breton falconer. It's really weird. I I, I have no idea what, what to do with this. I, I really don't either. I wish I did. Uh, I mean, all I can say is just to, to repeat this notion that it's it just adds to that dreamlike quality. It connects this story to the larger story cycle in a strange way. And maybe there's a story to be written about Haster, you know, the same way we think of uh, constellations or something like that. Uh, mythical beings about this is where, you know, he landed his resting point at some point during his life. Uh, but then maybe he's the originator of the whole concept of the king in yellow of of Carcosa and things like that. So there's just no way of knowing other than it kind of lends credence to the notion that Philip sort of dreams all of this and that he's read the King in Yellow and this name, like the old falconry terms, has found its way into his dream. Yeah, I, I really want this story to just be a time travel story. But I think that the 
the literary allusions, including the ones you know, to stories previously in this book, uh, support that reading instead, I think, right? This idea that something is just happening in the mind of the narrator. And that might really be the glue here, like right? where this is a King and Yellow story is that uh, uh, while Philip has been visiting his uh, his old friend in Kersalak, uh, well, it turns out that guy's got a copy of The King in Yellow and he read it last night and that was a mistake. Yeah, and then he ignores good advice about taking a buddy hunting with you. So <laughs> he, he just ends up here where he ends up. All right. One last thing that we need to do before we close out this episode, and that is to to come full circle, to return to the epigrams that Chambers gives us at the start. Uh, let's start with the, the one that's, I think, probably most on the nose. That's the bit from the Bible, from Proverbs 30. And I'll just gloss this again, right? There's a line here where uh, we're wondering, hey, how do birds fly? How do snakes crawl up on rocks if they don't have any legs? Why do boats float in the water? Like, why don't they sink? That's weird. And then also, you know, what is it like to know the love of a maid? Uh, except for the boats business, and, and maybe also the boats business, you can you can demonstrate this to me, Brandon. But hey, the rest of this stuff all shows up here. We've got a snake. We've got a, you know, falling in love with a woman. Got a lot of falcons. Yeah. I mean, the boats are here too. We have this wonderful line to that, uh, that just squeezes them into this story where uh, where Jeanne is telling her story to Philip and we get this. She had, it was true, seen ships at sea from the cliffs, but as far as the eye could reach the moors over which she galloped were destitute of any sign of human life. Uh, so yeah, this is, you know, also in relation to the yeast stuff, this is not about letting ships into this city in any way, but she's seen ships and maybe, you know, they're as strange a thing to her as werewolves, you know, these kinds of odd objects that are out there in the world that she just doesn't have any real experience with, but she's heard about. But yeah, we got birds, we got a serpent on the rock at the end of the story, and we have, uh, you know, a little love story here as well. So this doesn't feel like um, a super important epigraph other than maybe Chambers was reading Proverbs and it was like, I can use this. I can use these things in the story. And these are pretty wonderful things. So I'm going to write romance. Yeah, I mean, this actually sounds like a writing challenge to me, like a, a prompt, the sort of prompt that your buddy gives you at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> to write a story from this, <laughs> which actually those are the best stories. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's actually like four other of these uh, formulations in different books of prophets and uh, proverbs in the Old Testament uh, as it's collected, you know, six things the Lord loves, yay, seven things that he hates. Well, tell, tell me a story about those things instead of just getting the list. <laughs> well, I think we can uh, leave off uh, trying to talk about uh, Rabelais again and uh, I maybe had some idea of uh, trying to shoehorn Heraclitus and the uh, philosophy of time and therefore the philosophy of time travel into this story. But that would have been only for fun because there's just no way that uh, Chambers could have been thinking along those lines because, hey, nobody was thinking along those lines yet. But uh, that would be a fun thing to talk about on the forum if people are interested. I'd love to continue that along the forum. We can talk about elements, 
and how those things are really important to pre-Socratic philosophy. <laughs> well, all right. We will look forward to, to doing that. There's a ton to talk about, I think, with this story. And of course, uh, we're fairly stumped at the use of Haster and Yeast as well. And I'm sure that listeners have better thoughts than we do about those. And I would like to hear about them. But for us, at least that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Next time, we'll be back with Some Children Wander by Mistake by John Connolly. And then after that, we'll be getting some Lovecraft with The Doom That Came to Sarnath. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.